Welcome to the Career Brand Story Podcast, where we talk about your career, your brand, and your story. I'm Jeremy Tudor, career strategist, brand marketer, and storyteller that created the Career Brand Story method that has helped thousands of job seekers craft their career brand story for today's job market and land their dream job. Jeb, it's great to see you here, and I was just thinking the other day that we've completed one year with Career Brand Story Podcast, and this is episode number 30. That's really exciting. I'm, re- I'm really glad that we were able yeah. to stick to it and show up consistently for our listeners. And thank you to our listeners for listening, giving us a chance for the past year. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to the next 30 and uh, <laughs> everything that comes out of it. It's been a lot of fun. So, you know, today I was there's a few things that I think that are worse than anything for job seekers out here that when they go to apply for that dream job, they never hear anything back. Um, if you've ever been in that place, I know I've been in that place. I've poured myself, you know, all of myself into a resume. I updated, uh, uploaded to an applicant tracking system, all for me to tell me to retype it into the applicant tracking system, <laughs> hit the submit button, right? And then it just gets sucked into a black hole. Um, or maybe you were one of the few that actually lands the job interview. You go through a few rounds and then you get ghosted. Um, and that, my friend, is what we call a bad candidate experience. And there are things that you can do to better market yourself for your dream job. Of course you can. Uh, You know, we could list out just the five simple things that you could do to better position yourself. Go to my TikTok, Jeremy Tudor. You can find the how-tos there, right? But today, what I really want to focus in on our conversation is what are great companies doing to attract the right talent and how you, the job seeker, can tell if they're really being authentic about their culture. Um, And so I'm excited Um, to have Susan Lamont, who is the founder, the CEO, and the principal strategist at Exacquio, uh, join us today. And I've actually, Jeb, you introduced me to Exacquio, and then I started following him along. And Susan, I just want to let you know, I'm a huge raving fan now of your company. Um, It's (laughs) everything from... I just, I'm like, if, if, if I wasn't doing what I already love doing, I would... I would be pitching how to uh, how to be working for you. Um, love love the fact that you are out there helping companies um, figure out how to better position themselves and create that employee value proposition um, that creates a better candidate experience. Um, she has um, leads the business. She does strategic uh, consulting um, for global um, five hundred uh, clients. Um, at Exacquio, she has worked directly with senior leaders at organizations including T-Mobile, CVS Health, uh, BCG, and Lyft. Um, and her work includes creating the whole self model, uh, where she's pioneering the concept of source of influence over source of hire and creating the industry's really next generation candidate experience model. So Susan, welcome. Um, we're really glad to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I love talking about these topics and it's really good timing because the job market is so hot right now. Um, Employers are dying to hire all of you. Um, And I also, earlier in my career, I don't know if you know this, I was a career coach. I actually wrote a career coaching book um, about 12 years ago. So I love um, talking to job seekers. It's, It's really where my passion lies. So just to kind of start off and for my audience to, to learn more, a little bit about you, um, of where you are today, what brought you to this point in your career? 
So like most people, I think I've had a really interesting career journey. Nobody, you know, grows up and says, I want to be a recruiter or I want to work in HR. Um, For me, the common theme I always tell people is I sit at the intersection of where business meets behavior. So I've been always really passionate about work. I got my first W-2 when I was 14 um, and I've worked ever since. Um, I worked all the way through high school, all the way through college, through grad school twice. Um, I don't let a lot of grass grow under my feet. And so I actually started my my HR career um, while I was in grad school. I ran out of money and needed to get a full-time job. And so I found a job as a recruiter and that turned into a real passion for HR. I just loved helping people find a place where they could really thrive. And, you know, we think about employment, it's not just like buying a product, right? It puts food on our table and a roof over our head. And so I've always carried that with me. Um, And so from being a recruiter, I did HR consulting. Um, I worked in career services for Johns Hopkins University for a while, um, and then um, had my own business doing career coaching and um, spent a long time consulting in career coaching before going back into the corporate world um, and serving in several recruiting leadership functions for the Ritz-Carlton and Marriott International. And while I was at Marriott, um, they asked me to rebuild the company's employer brand. And for those of you that haven't heard the term, employer brand is essentially the way a company brands and markets their employment experience. So like the way you would brand and market a product, but you're branding and marketing employment. And as I was going through that journey, what I realized is there weren't a lot of firms that I could rely on. There weren't a lot of experts who could do research, market research in the job market, help me build a strategy, and then help me do all the creative, um, you know, uh, sorry, creative strategy and creative asset design, web design, photo, video production, all of those things. And so I thought, you know, there's real space in the market um, to build that firm. And so I did. And 10 years later, we've had the privilege with working um, with Fortune 500 companies all over the world. It's it's a lot of fun. So um, I love the fact that you talk about, you know, helping people really be able to get to that place where they, you know, thrive in their careers. And that's really the mission statement and kind of motto for my own life is that I just believe everyone can thrive in their life and do what they love. And, um, mm-hmm. and I, I was just making a short video um, today on Instagram about that, you know, throughout my entire career, I always heard people say that, you know, well, business isn't personal, it's just business. But it's like, that just can't be true because I come home and if I had a bad day at work, I carry that at home and the paycheck helps put dinner on the table. And, you know, so there's no way I can actually truly separate that. One aspect, Mm -hmm. yeah, I understand the sentiment of that statement, but I don't think that that's a true feeling. Um, I think all of us lean into these these points in our careers that are hard and and intention and that we have to work through. Um, as you got to where you are today, what's been one of the hardest decisions that you had to make in regards to your career? You know, it's it's funny that you're sort of intertwining those two things together because we always talk about the data that HR collects, right, on people. It's usually from the time you start work to the time you leave. If you've ever taken one of those like employee engagement surveys at work, it doesn't really ask you about how you are at home or what life is like or what you like to do outside work. And so the reason that I share that is because one of the things that we research when we talk to employees is the relationship piece. So who are the people in your life that influence the decisions that you make? And then what we call internal self, which what are the values that govern your decision making. So that's part of why we think about it that way, because I experienced a lot of that. Um, When I was at Marriott, I was 
flying high in my career. I was doing really well. I had built this employer brand. I got the attention of the C-suite. Um, one of my proudest moments was sitting around a boardroom table with the chief marketing officer, the EVP for global communications, and the chief HR officer. And they were all fighting over where my function should sit. They all wanted a piece of the employer brand pie because they realized how powerful it was and how important it was to the organization. So it wasn't an ego thing for me. It was, gosh, I showed them how important employer brand was. I was offered a VP promotion and I turned it down. And I remember my dad um, telling me I was crazy. He'd worked his whole life to become a corporate executive and he thought I was nuts. But you know what? I was thinking about having children at the time and thinking about my future. And it was really hard to walk away from an amazing, stable company like Marriott. Um, I'm still a you know loyal Marriott customer today, um, but I realized that the organization itself, the way that it was structured, and what would be required of me as a as a VP as an executive, that was not how I personally like to thrive. I don't like to talk about fit in an organization per se because you're not looking to fit you know that square peg in the square hole. You're looking for a place where you can get your best work done in the way you get it done. And for me, I realized that the longer I stayed at Marriott, I wouldn't have that opportunity. I like to move fast. Um, I like to get things done quickly. I like to be creative, but I don't like to spend hours making a decision. So that's what really led me to entrepreneurship and this opportunity um, to start Exacquio. But it was a really tough decision to walk away from Marriott. I bet. Yeah. So as we've come out of the pandemic, um, you know, women in particular, the data showing us that 5.4 million jobs during the pandemic. Um, have been lost for women, um, over 4.4 million for men. So more women have lost their jobs than men, right, during this pandemic. Um, and mm-hmm. then about only 55% of them have actually, like, gotten back into the workforce um, as we come out of this. Um, and you're a working mother. You're an entrepreneur. Um, and... At, that's a lot because I'm thinking I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a dad. Um, I'm so thankful for my mm-hmm. wife, <laughs> you know, and the support. She's doing her own thing too, but yeah, um, it, yeah. it's a lot on families today, and mm-hmm. and especially, you know, when we look at you know, looking at that data, we could say, wow, that's going to be a real setback, you know, um, for yeah. women and leadership, um, kind of in the future. How do you see? best for organizations to kind of respond and adapt to that as we come out of this pandemic? So what's really funny about all of this and ironic funny really is I actually predicted that this was going to happen. In May of 2020, two months after we got through, you know, we'd been through the pandemic, I wrote an article for Working Mother magazine. And the title was that working mothers would be disproportionately screwed after the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. we were. Right. Um, And, you know, I say working mom because, look, there are families that I tell my children this all the time. I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. I have a husband who is a really wonderful and participatory co-parent who also works full-time and has a demanding job. And families come in all shapes and sizes. I tell my kids that all the time. But so many of the things that have to get done at home traditionally fall to the female figure sometimes in the household. And so a lot of the women that I talked to for that article, including one in particular who had a really promising career in finance, had an MBA, she just up and quit her job because it was easier for her to do that. 
it starts to get really personal when you dig into it as to why it was easier for this particular woman. Um, but you know, the way that I look at it is the majority of decision makers in corporate America are men. They just are. For whatever reason, that's how work has evolved over the past century. And part of the problem with that is a lot of those men that are in decision-making roles, when they had young kids, they either had never had kids, or when they had young kids, they didn't have to worry about taking care of them. And so I firmly right. believe it's just harder for them to empathize. And that's the best thing that organizations can do, is to truly understand the plight of the working mother and the working parent to stop and see the data, not just say like, oh, we'll offer family leave. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the CEO of JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon, came out with some pretty powerful commentary to say, you know what, you're just going to have to get back to work. And those of you that can't, and I'm paraphrasing here, but those of you that can't, you're just not cut out for the hustle. And I think that's part of the problem. It's making working women conform to the model we've already had instead of looking at these abysmal numbers, being embarrassed and horrified by them, and also wondering why we can't hire people right now, there's your problem. Because organizations are not thinking about how do we evolve and shift in order to meet the needs right. of, of the working woman. And it's a good question all job seekers can ask to truly understand what's it going to be like as a working mom for me in this in this company or in this job. If everything that yeah. Susan just said were a meme, it would be one of those memes that say, read it again. Yeah, right. <laughs> so play that back. Listen to that again. Oh, goodness. I wish it 100%. wasn't true. I really do. I really do. I hate hearing it out loud sometimes, but it is true. And I hate to preach about it. But gosh, I really want someone to pay attention. I want a big Fortune 500 company to stand up and say, you know what, we're going to make a different commitment and not just be lip service. And unfortunately, that's what's happening. And about six months from now, when they're still struggling to hire and when there's the big turnover tsunami that we're all predicting that's coming and they're really short staffed, they're going to wake up and say, oh my gosh, we can't make our money without working moms, without working women. And then maybe they'll wake up and do something about it. We certainly hope. So I was I was 26 years old when I like really entered into the corporate world. Fortunate mm -hmm. that through my corporate career, I always reported to um, you know an executive woman in leadership. Um, and at 26, you just don't know anything, right? And so I was shocked when she, she, I remember the EVP at the time said to me, she was like, Jeremy. She's like, women get paid less than men. And I was like, that just can't be true. Like, it wasn't even equating in my head that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a thing. And it's just insane that it's a thing. Because um, I coach, especially women who come and, and go through our process, and, and, and I coach them all the time, like, don't just take the job offer. You need to negotiate back, you know, because there is always more money there. I mean, I think that for everybody – but I think women yeah. especially need to feel empowered, um, you know, to make that mm -hmm. move. And I think the other point that you talk about is empathy, that the good leaders, um, the leaders who are going to actually make a difference, you know, going forward is those who can actually practice that emotional intelligence of empathy um, and, and truly understand where people's needs are. So tell us a little bit more about Exacquio. Um, 
just a, a high overview of exactly what you all do there. Uh, you guys have been growing. I know that you've yeah. been hiring mm-hmm. um, and got a few open positions. Yeah. So anyone out there who's looking for a great company, I'm telling you, <laughs> uh, you should check them out because I read through <laughs> the job descriptions. I shared it out to my network. Uh, so tell me just a little Thank bit more you. about what you do there, what you love doing. Yeah, sure. So exactly. It was an employer brand consulting firm. So we brand and market the employment experience for our clients. So what that means is that they want to make sure that they're promoting what it's like to work at their organization. And they're telling that story for both candidates, job candidates, or those people that they want to recruit, but also for employees because it's branding and marketing the whole experience because you've got to make sure that you are recruiting the right talent, but you have to make, you also have to make sure you're continually marketing to retain that talent too, right? It's like Coca-Cola doesn't just spend money to acquire customers. They also spend money to make sure that they keep those customers loyal. Um, And so that's what we do. We're a full service consulting firm and agency. And so we've got three arms to our business. One is the research side. We do a lot of market research to help companies understand how job seekers think and feel, particularly the job seekers they're trying to reach. Um, We have a strategy arm where we focus on how do you build that brand strategy? What's that brand architecture? And then we have an entire creative and dev team. Um, And so that team does all of our creative execution. So everything from building career sites to creating job advertisements, out-of-home advertising, radio spots. We do social media assets. Um, and then we do a lot of creative guidance on the people that are interacting with um, candidates. So, you know, if a recruiter calls you and they have this amazing conversation, that person was likely scripted or supported behind the scenes to engage with you as, as best that they can. Um, and that's all part of, of what we do. So I know that you... Um, <clears throat> again, have this whole model around the whole self and really holistically, you know, think about the whole person and their career and their experience and, and what that means and talk a lot about authenticity. Um, it's something I value that we embrace here at the career brand story team as well. Why do you think, and that's so important for employers to express today, just the authenticity and really being real. Yeah, it's because, you know, it's, Candidates don't want to see lipstick on a pig. Nobody does. There is nothing worse than getting super excited about a job and then you start the job and it sucks, right? Or it wasn't what you were promised. I always use the analogy, you can open a can of ginger ale and if there's Coke in there, it's not that you're disappointed, it's that you expected ginger ale. It's not that that, that you don't like Coca-Cola. And so that's the challenge. That's why it's so important. So we feel really strongly that employers shouldn't just say, here's what's great about working at our company. What's traditionally in our industry called EVP or employer value proposition. If you Google employer brand, you'll see a lot about EVP. That's kind of the old, older school way to do employer brand, which is here's what's great about working at this company. Here are the five things and let's tell lots of stories about these five things and let's put it all over our career site. Really, what we're focused on is beyond DVP, helping your clients brand and market the commitment they're going to make to you as a candidate. So if I put myself in the job seeker's shoes, it's so important that the employer does that. And an employer that's more honest with me, I should respect more because they're actually pulling back the curtain and saying, hey, look, here's what's great about, about you know what it's like to work here. Here are the things that people find value in working for our organization. 
Here are what we call the realities. Those are the things that are neither good nor bad. So we have a client who's a frozen food manufacturer. The plant is 32 degrees. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I hate the cold weather, so I wouldn't thrive in a plant that was 32 degrees. That's neither good nor bad, right? I love vegetables, and so this frozen food plant that makes vegetables is important to my life, but it wouldn't be a career for me because of that reality. And then there's the detractors. That's where an organization is really honest about the things that they're not good at. So for example, you have a lot of companies right now that are trying to commit to diversity and inclusion initiatives. The ones that are most successful are the ones that are saying, look, we recognize perhaps that our numbers are not strong, but here's what we're doing about it. Here's the journey we're on. So they're actually saying, this is a challenge. We recognize it's a shortcoming. We're doing something about it. We're going to be honest with you. So as a job seeker, that's what I tell candidates all the time. Don't just look for the great things. When you think about at the end of an interview, you know, what are the questions you're asking the employer? Ask them what the realities are. Tell me what it's really like to work there. What are the things that, you know, cause some people not to cut it? Another great question to ask is, if I were to start a job at your organization tomorrow and I said, what would make me super successful there? Give me true understanding behind the scenes. What advice is going to make me successful? How should I behave? How should I not behave? And then the last thing you can ask is, tell me what you don't like about working here. What are the things that scare people away? What are the biggest challenges? But in spite of those challenges, you stay at this organization. You're going to get such a better answer and more rich information than the recruiter who only wants to talk about the good stuff. If they only want to talk about the good stuff, that in and of itself should be a big red flag because they're afraid to tell you what it's really like. And that's where you're going to truly understand, can I actually thrive there? It's like um, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or partner. I am a total neat freak. My husband is not, yet I married him in spite of that. He married me in spite of me being a neat freak and all of my obsessive trips to the container store. But it's as funny as that is, that's how we should think about jobs, right? So like think about Amazon and its aggressive workplace. For some people, that fast pace, like if you work in a warehouse, you're on your feet 12 hours a day as a picker, going back and forth, going back and forth. For some people, like that's exhausting, but maybe they love it. Maybe that's how they get their exercise in every day. So those are the kinds of conversations that you should be having as a job seeker to, to really uncover the truth. Yeah, that's really great advice and advice I wish I had heard way back when I was in the corporate world. I wish that I had asked those questions. Now I just work for myself and I'm responsible for my own misery, but <laughs> but that's really great. <laughs> so um, I think one of the, 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 the hot conversations right now um, that's happening is um, as companies come back to work, do I get to continue to work from home? And I just read, it was in Fast Company last night that popped up on my phone and it said, why workers are calling BS on leaders about returning to the office. Um, workforce scholars find that employers employees are feeling burned out over uh, broken work from home promises and corporate culture BS as employers try to bring them back to the office. Um, and I, I can't remember um, what her name is, the, the president, at, I think it's GM. Um, but like mm-hmm. she came out with a policy and basically said, work appropriately, right? Um, but people are really mm-hmm. struggling with this. Um, and, you know, um, I think that, you know, I, I've had clients who have said to me, look, I'm really fine. I'm ready to go back to work. 
Um, I think it's for those of the, that have been kind of on top of the family. You know, they need that kind of break. They need that space. I've also had plenty of clients who um, they are actually like thinking about, okay, I've been working remotely. I like this lifestyle. How do I keep doing this? Um, and so there's just a lot of debate right now between, and you'll see the polls on LinkedIn. Um, they just keep coming of working from home, working at the office, work flexibility. Um, and that's just one, that's just one aspect of things that we consider from a value standpoint of like, is this really the right place for me? How do job seekers and employers bridge that gap of the needs between one another? It's such a good question because I think the past 12 to 18 months have have opened that up more so than ever before. You know, we always used to look at employment as this transactional relationship, this give and get. You give me these benefits and this money, in return right. you get my hard work. What we know now is that employment is not like that. It's more more attuned to like what we call in the academic world of relationships an exchange relationship. Sorry, a communal relationship, which is much more about collaborating and working towards a common goal. So when we think about these virtual work policies, and I I call them virtual work, not remote, because that means you're disengaged or far away, and not work from home, because Mm -hmm. part of the beauty of this notion of working virtually is you can be anywhere. You can go visit your sick parents. You can go take your RV anywhere you want to be. And so I like to think about it that way. But the most important thing is only... roughly 22% of jobs can actually be done outside of a workplace. And so instead of thinking about it as a virtual work policy per se, I like to think about it as what's the work opportunity? So you're thinking about what your approach is. So the the GM CEO that you mentioned, Mary Barra, um, that idea helps you frame it more effectively because then you can say, okay, if I really do want flexibility in where I work, then I've got to choose a job that's going to allow me to do that. I can't work on a manufacturing line and work virtually in most cases, right? So that's step number one. I think step number two is organizations truly having the data to understand what people want. And that's what you can do as a job seeker is be really transparent up front. Um, There's an article in Bloomberg um, today, I believe, about um, working virtually. And it talks about a lot of people who are quitting their job um, when they find out that they have to go back to work and there's no flexibility on virtual work. And one person shared her experience. She got called back to the office for what she said was like a six minute meeting. And she just decided to quit right there. She said, that's a sign that they're not listening to me. So what she did as a job seeker, which I thought was super smart, is in the interviews that she started doing to get a new job, the recruiters asked what she wanted and she was super transparent. She said, this is my guardrail. I want to be able to work 100% virtually. And they said, sure. And right now, it's a really hot market for job seekers. So you have that power. You have that ability. So the more transparent you can be about the needs that you have, where you can be flexible and where you can't be, is just going to behoove you. You don't want to go through a whole job search process only to find out that you know the virtual work that they're promising is like one day a month, and that's not going to work for you. So that's it's the transparency and the honesty that's really going to drive the relationship effectiveness, I think. Well, and I think there's this misbelief for the job seeker that they actually have the power and the ability, I should say the empowerment, to actually ask those questions and be honest like that up front. Um, I I know Mm -hmm. 
a few years ago, I was I interviewed for a job, went through the whole process, met with a team of people. They were ready to offer the job, and it really did come down to like being able to work work virtually. And I wasn't even asking for like you know five days a week I'd ever want to come in. I was just asking for like one or two days where I could be kind of positioned at home around my kids. We homeschool; they kind of need that attention, and and have that flexibility in it. And it was just a hard no. It was like not going to happen. And I work talent acquisition recruiting. I've worked virtually for the last probably seven years out of the 16 years that I did that. So it's like, no, I know that's possible. And so, you know, I called the the HR person, the hiring manager, and I said, I'm, I'm not interested. And she was not happy with me. Like there was a, there was that feeling of like, I, I can't believe you took us through this process. But it was like, well, I don't feel like I wasn't up front. And so I think that like, Job seekers encounter that, and that's really frustrating. Yeah. And then I think the other piece of that is that, um, gosh, you're sitting at a table and you want that job. You know, you're thinking, mm-hmm. if I could just get the job offer, and you're flattered when you get the job offer, but yet it still may not be the right thing for you. And I, I just think yeah. that that's a hard thing for job seekers. It's a misbelief that they have the, the empowerment to, to walk away from the table if, if that's the best thing for them to thrive in their life. When I, so 12 years ago when I wrote my book, The Right Job Right Now, um, you know, it was before social media. So a lot of it is outdated in that sense. But I have a model in the book called the kaleidoscope model. And the idea is that everybody comes to the table with a certain set of skills, abilities, and behaviors, right? You don't want to hear me sing. No matter how much I try, I cannot make a career of singing. But if you shift that kaleidoscope ever so slightly, you can change what you're looking for. If you make a big shift, you can change it completely. So the idea is if you figure out, if you look inward and figure out from yourself what's most important, what are your top criteria that you're absolutely not willing to budge on, and then don't make exceptions, right? Compare the job offers to that. It makes it a lot easier to turn down those things, right? It's like, let's say you want to have kids and you find a partner who doesn't. If you're really convicted in that belief and you've already made that commitment to yourself, then it's a little bit easier to walk away from that relationship. The same thing can be said for jobs. And yet we just wait and we're like, oh, I've got this job offer. Now I'm going to sit down and think about, (laughs) is this right for me? I think doing that introspective work first is so important um, and and crucial to making the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. I I think Jeremy, well, you know, talking about the, I guess, hostility may be too strong of a word, but the kind of hostility you receive from the hiring manager, it just goes back to like, that's another red flag. You wouldn't want to be there anyway, because, you know, going back to what Susan said about a communal relationship versus a a transactional one exchange relationship, Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to, you want to sit on the same side of the table as people, not across, you know, you're not supposed to be enemies in Mm-hmm. in an interview situation you're supposed to be saying we're going to work together so you know i really think that just goes back to being transparent if if they're not going to be transparent you can at least be transparent and and know if this position aligns to your values and what you want out of your career yeah sure. and, and that goes back to um, with our clients we have a talent inside assessment we use um, the the science behind mm-hmm. it is disc so it's behavioral and I think that's an important piece mm-hmm. of knowing how you like to do things. We're also able to measure why people do what they do, what drives them and motivates them, mm-hmm. which is where I actually think most job seekers get stuck because, 
you know, when we interview for a job, we typically interview on skill set. And nine out of 10 times, our behaviors will match up with that. Um, I'm not really convinced that most hiring managers understand the behavioral questions they're really asking and why. Um, and the likability bias sneaks into the interview. And that's why you end up with the job. Like, well, we really would like working with you. And then there's issues that come because you haven't tapped into your why and what really motivates and drives you. But, you know, understanding both the behavioral component and that motivational component like can create more job satisfaction. You know, back to the example I was giving, like she even walked me by this glass cubicle that I would sit in as if like, look, this would be where you get to sit. Well, if you know me behaviorally, like I love my autonomy. I, I, I don't want to be constrained to anything, to a schedule, to a, like this is where you're going to sit for eight hours a day or anything like that. And, uh, and, and so, but knowing that about myself, right, it's why I do what I do today. Um, you know, I went and worked for the state of North Carolina, um, and, um, you know, I hated it, to be quite honest. I worked for the Department of Revenue. Uh, it was the most boring job um, in talent acquisition I ever had, um, and mainly because I just didn't feel like I had that ability to, to do things the way and how I did things, you know. Um, now, I later had a great boss that she did see that, understood my autonomy, and, and, and allowed me to, mm -hmm. to do the work that I wanted to do. But, but it takes understanding of yourself, and then it takes understanding of yeah. who's leading to allow you to kind of operate that. So my best boss was uh, mm -hmm. you know, the director of, of um, Special Olympics. Uh, the HR head of HR for Special Olympics, and uh, she did. She's the one who first took me through DISC and helped me understand that. Now looking back on it, I realize mm -hmm. she managed me exactly like that, you know. And again, hands down, I would say, man, she was an amazing leader because she took the time to understand me individually. And I, I think that that misses the mark mm -hmm. and for a, a lot of people in their jobs today. Yeah, it's so true. And I also think we sometimes don't stop and ask the question, like, who will my leader be? Yeah. And what is their style? Right. And we're so focused on the interview, right? It's so one-sided. I come in, you ask me a whole bunch of questions. I get five minutes at the end to ask my questions. You know, that's not how a relationship should be. And if we stop and think about it, that's, you know, the powers in the job seeker. You get that job offer, make sure you know, they should allow you to talk to your leader again. Can I talk to my manager one more time? I want to understand. I've got some questions for him or her. Do all of those things yeah. to make sure that you get the information you need because you raise such an important point about the role that the manager plays. It's a big part of the relationship. You're not just joining an organization. You're actually spending you know, a lot of time with a couple of people. So it's really important to understand what that working relationship will be like. Well, Susan, I have one last question for you. Um, we ask every first-time guest on our show this question. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hmm. I like I love um, that question because I don't think it has a, a one answer. Um, a couple of years ago, maybe longer than that, a woman named Marcy Alberher, she used to be the career columnist for the New York Times, wrote a book um, called Slash Careers. And the idea is that you can have multiple careers in your life. So I actually dream about doing some things that are really different. Like I spent this weekend doing a lot of painting and building. So I would love to be like a woodworker. I think that would be really amazing. I also dream about writing children's books. So I love this idea of slash careers where you can do a lot of 
um, different things in your lifetime instead of just describing to one. Yeah, very cool. Well, Susan, thank you so much um, for sharing your insight um, on how companies can think differently about attracting talent, how job seekers can ask the right questions and really think about where they want to go next. Um, It's going to be a really interesting year um, as we have this understanding that Again, a tsunami of talent change is going to happen with one in four of employees saying, look, I'm not happy where I'm at. I'm going to make a move. Um, I will tell you, um, the month of May um, was back to our pre-COVID amounts of work we were doing. And so I think it's coming. Um, And already just in the first two days of June, it's it's uh, I thought, well, for sure, it will slow down like there's that and people are are calling. Um, yesterday, I had like four different referrals um, that were floating in. And so I, I think it's a true um, thing that's being said. I think companies will be smart to listen to what's going on uh, and make strategies and, and, and have a deep understanding of how they need to respond um, to their current talent workforce. Um, thank you for what you're doing out there. Um, if you're looking for a job, I'm Go check out Axwio because they're they're hiring and they it's a cool company and they got some cool things going on there. Yeah, and I, I'll just add to that. I won't give any names, but I've had the pleasure of working with Susan on a couple of projects, and um, you know, she is the real deal. Her company is the real deal, and the companies that they do work for have been the real deal for me. Just the the nature of the work we were doing, it it wasn't putting lipstick lipstick on a pig it was real people um who you could tell really appreciated what they did so her company is obviously doing some great things out there and i would encourage you to go uh check them out hey this episode is sponsored in part by enter your fellowship are you a college graduate or in college and at least 21 years old are you seeking to understand how to best participate given your unique gifts talents and desires Maybe consider taking an intentional gap year to gain clarity. Enter Your Fellowship is now accepting 2021 and 2022 applications. Let's close the gap together. You can apply today at enteryear.org forward slash apply. You can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn. Just search for Jeremy Tudor. And on Instagram, I'm at Jeremy T. Tudor. And also, while many of you listen to a podcast, because that is what a podcast is for, you can also watch each episode on YouTube. Um, We have a landing page now. Just go to careerbrandstory.com. You can connect with us on any of our listening platforms there. Watch us on YouTube. uh, And we would love to um, have you subscribe and like and, and be a part of all of our episodes that are going on there. Comment. Let us know what you think. Um, Tell us what you want to talk about. Um, This is why we're out here um, doing this podcast. We want to be able to talk about your career, your brand, and your story. And Susan, we want people to be able to connect with you. And uh, so where can they be able to do that? So you can find us at exaquio.com, E-X-A-Q-U-E-O, on Instagram or Twitter at exaquio. And you can find me um, on Instagram at Susan Lamont um, or on LinkedIn forward slash Susan Lamont as well. Happy to, to take questions and continue the conversation. All right. And Jeb, where can people find you? As always, you can find me on my website, jebgraff.com. That's J-E-B-B-G-R-A-F-F. And at jebgraff is my handle everywhere else. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and keep thriving. 
you're interested in advertising your business on our podcast, we advertise for local and national companies. Contact McKay at careerbrandstory.com for more information. That's M-C-C-A-Y at careerbrandstory.com.